The reading is from Zechariah chapter 11, the whole chapter. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Thus saith, said the Lord my God, <clears throat> Become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, I have become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor, and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one named Fav I named Favor, the other I named Union. And I tended the sheep. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Thank you, Pat. Let's, uh, let's pray as we think about the passage today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, what you've been teaching us through the prophet Zechariah these past weeks. As we continue towards the end of the book, we pray that today's passage would indeed help us understand who you are, who we are, what your call in our lives is, that that would be true for each one of us, whether uh, we're still working through uh, what we believe in terms of the claims of the Bible, the claims of Jesus, or whether we have been walking with you for many years, but need that in, in encouragement and direction uh, to keep trusting in you. So be with us now, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before we get into the text, I wanted to say a massive thank you to you uh, for your generosity to us as we've been preparing for our sabbatical. Um, we kind of went through the, the raising of funds. You, you raised funds for 2020 when we thought we were going, and then we kind of obviously have had to delay it. But uh, even your generosity on top of that over recent months has been a massive help, especially as uh, airfares and car rentals and so forth have not got any cheaper over the last few months with the increase in the energy costs. And so we're, we're hugely indebted to you uh, for, for your help with that. As we get closer to the sabbatical, which uh, will start on June 6th, we'll tell you a little bit more about what we're going to be doing. Uh, but I did want to tell you this morning that one of the things that Tara and I well, we'll get to do on our sabbatical is to visit Port Rush in Northern Ireland, uh, where I pastored for four and a half years. We'll be attending a wedding there of the daughter of some of our closest friends uh, in that church. That's on the Saturday. And the next day, and I promise, I promise this is going to be the only work I do on the sabbatical, I'm going to be preaching at that church where I'd served. That'll be the first time I've been able to preach there in over 20 years, so I'm looking forward to that. But that, that church, called Ballywillan Presbyterian Church, has, has a number of farming families in the congregation. And when we lived there, one of those farmers called William Taylor had a farm uh, which sat right underneath, in a sense, the home of my pastoral colleague, Jim Fraser. His house was on a hill looking over William Taylor's farm. And every so often, Jim would have to call William up and tell him that he'd seen one of his sheep on its back. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, okay, well, thanks for the information, so what? Well, the so what, some of you may know, is that sheep are not the brightest of animals, and when they get rolled over onto their back, they can't roll themselves back again. They're stuck unless someone comes and turns them over again. Sheep aren't the smartest of animals. They're also rather easily misled. You might have seen this story a few years ago, but there was a story in the news of this remote farming community in a, the town of Givas in eastern Turkey, where Turkish shepherds watched uh, the, the community's flocks, the flocks that belonged to 26 families. And this particular day, it was breakfast time. The sheep were all out grazing in their field. Uh, very happily, the shepherds decided, okay, we'll take a break for our own breakfast. Right at that moment, one of the sheep had a scary thought. We don't actually know what the thought was, but what we do know is that that sheep, having stopped grazing, left the pack, which the rest of the pack took as evidence the sheep was obviously a leader. That sheep then promptly went over the cliff down into the valley where it died from the impact. What happened next? Yes, you guessed it. 1,500 sheep followed the leader and more or less one by one leapt off the 
cliff to their demise. There is a slightly happy ending to this story, that after the first 450 sheep jumped, the pile was so high that the next 1,000 sort of just bounced a little bit, and they survived. Sheep aren't the smartest of animals. Well, it consequently comes as a rather sobering realization, and perhaps for some of us a little insulting, that the Bible frequently calls us, as human beings, sheep. We've sung about this over the years with the children. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Ba, ba, do, ba, ba. Each of us have run, gone his own way. Ba, ba, do, ba, ba. Remember that? Isaiah 53, 6. Well, Zechariah 10 and 11 is another biblical passage that reminds us that we are sheep. And the question that Zechariah really is going to ask us today is, if you're a sheep, and you are, who's your shepherd? Who's your shepherd? So here's today's sermon in a sentence, that there are good shepherds and there are bad shepherds. Our survival depends on following the good shepherd. I'm going to break this down into three parts uh, from chapters 10 and 11 today. First of all, the Lord our shepherd. Secondly, the role-play shepherds, and thirdly, the good shepherd. There are good shepherds and there are bad shepherds. Our survival depends on following the good shepherd. And just before we go to our first point, a quick reminder about this final section of the book of Zechariah, which uh, runs from chapters 9 to 14. From the New Testament's perspective, this is one of the most significant sections of the entire Old Testament, and no more so than as we begin this Holy Week and think about Jesus' final uh, week of life and then his death. There are 41 quotes from Zechariah 9, chapters 9 to 14 in the Gospels, and indeed in the Gospel accounts of Jesus' final week, these six chapters are quoted more often than any other comparable section in the Old Testament. That said, these chapters are all but unknown to most Christians. It's somewhat rare to hear sermons on these chapters by any preacher, and if I didn't know the reason for that a few weeks ago, I do now, because they're rather complicated chapters. They're hard to get your head around. For one thing, these chapters move from the earlier prose that we were looking at in the book of Zechariah to now poetry. And with poetry, it brings increased uh, use of metaphor and simile, plays on words. These chapters also don't fo follow a, a chronological order. One example is that last week we saw at the very end of chapter 9 a vision of the world to come, the consummated kingdom, when Jesus is going to come back and make all things right. Well, as we're about to see here in chapter 10, we're back to problems with idolatry amongst God's people, problems with false shepherds. Clearly, we're no longer in the perfect world to come. But what we can say about these chapters is that Zechariah has structured them very intentionally. As I mentioned last week, chapters 9 to 14 consist of, of two oracles. Chapters 9 to 10 is one oracle. Chapters 12 to 14 is another oracle. These chapters uh, serve, however, as really side panels to a center panel of chapter 11, the chapter that Pat read for us. And that chapter is placed as such by Zechariah in, in a way to draw our attention in to it. And as we're going to see, this center panel is all about sheep 
and shepherds. It's all about sheep and shepherds. Before we look at, get to the center panel of chapter 11, we do need to look first at chapter 10 because it really sets the stage for the, the following chapter. Chapter 10 uh, gives us really our first point, which is the Lord, our shepherd. Zechariah begins the chapter by cutting right to the chase and spotlighting, spotlighting the sheep-like behavior of God's people, or in the words of John Calvin, reproving them for their brute stupidity. And their stupidity was demonstrated in the fact that they said they believed in the God who is the Lord of the universe, therefore the one who controls the weather systems. But instead of asking God for rain at a time of year when their crops desperately needed it, they were praying to their little household gods who were incapable of doing anything but leading people astray. But for Zechariah, there was a bigger issue beyond their dumb idolatry. It was that they were without a shepherd. Look at verses 2 to 3a. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. Israel's state of wandering like lost sheep here is not, not due to the total absence of shepherds. Zechariah says it was because of the absence of a good shepherd. The existing shepherds were rulers who were bad rulers, and therefore we read the object of God's wrath. We're going to come back to the problem of these bad shepherds, but for now we want to see what God's solution to the problem of bad shepherds was. So we pick it up again in verse 3 through 5. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses." The answer to the problem of the bad shepherds here follows a similar pattern to the answer given by God in Ezekiel 34, and it's twofold. First of all, God says he himself will act as the shepherd of his people. He says, I, the Lord of hosts, care for my people. He still says that today, believe it or not, for us. He cares for us. He wants to shepherd us. And secondly, he says, in order for him to shepherd the people... I will provide for my people a good shepherd. A new shepherd is on the way. He says this shepherd is going to be the cornerstone, the one who stops the house of Judah from falling down. He'll be the tent peg, the one who holds the tent of Judah in place. He'll be the, the battle bow that repels the enemies of God's people. And through this good shepherd, the Lord our shepherd will embolden all the leaders and all his people. Verse 3, we're told we'll all be like majestic steeds, not just in the sense of donkey and Shrek when he exclaims to Princess Fiona, she called me a steed, but we'll have the real strength of steeds. And in the words of verse 5, God's people will be warriors in battle, trampling their enemy into the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders and horses. We'll see later on how that applies to us today. But this newfound courage and vigor comes simply from the fact that Yahweh, who cares for us, his flock, 
will himself shepherd us and will provide for us a good shepherd. As you read through the following verses in chapter 10 from verse 6 to 12, you discover the glorious consequences of God committing himself to shepherd his people. Notice, if you look at those verses, if you have it, look, see it on the screen or in your Bible, it's God himself who's doing all the shepherding here. He's the subject of all the leading verbs. So it's God who strengthens his people such that their wandering and their lostness is brought to an end. It's God who saves and restores the scattered flock. It's God who makes them joyful and redeems them and gathers them in. And then just for good measure, in case we missed it the first time, again, he tells us he strengthens them. And then using language of the exodus from the past, God looks forward to an even more glorious deliverance in the future, where his people will be reunited, where they will walk in his name. The only time that phrase is used in the entire Bible, uh, meaning that they will reflect his character to the world. And then according to verse 6, God will erase their rebellious past as if it had never happened. Which actually is exactly what God does for us with regard to our sin. That once we put our faith in Jesus, our sins are paid for and they're forgiven. And God looks at us as if we had never sinned or rejected him. It's an astonishing promise. Just one of the promises here of the Lord our shepherd. So the way God will shepherd his people and bring about this remarkable reversal in their condition is by getting rid of bad leaders and providing good ones in their place. And that sets us the scene nicely for chapter 11 and our second point, the role play shepherds. Look at verses 4 to 6 in chapter 11. Thus says the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock, doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them, slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord. I have become rich and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king. And they shall crush the land and I will deliver none from their hand. Zechariah asks, God asked Zechariah to, to do a visual aid, to do what are called sign acts. Here's a definition of a sign act. It's a nonverbal action intentionally employed by the prophets so that message content is communicated through them to the, the audience. Anyways, baptism is a sign act. Communion is a sign act. Well, the prophets were called at times to perform sign acts. Je Zechariah is not the only prophet who gets to do these in fact, when it comes to Sinax in the Old Testament, it's probably the prophet Ezekiel who got to have the most fun. I invite you to look up some of his adventures in the book of Ezekiel. But Zechariah is not that far behind Ezekiel, as here he gets to slip into costume and play two parts in this chapter. He gets to, first of all, play the part of a good shepherd, and then later on in the chapter, he gets to play the part of a bad shepherd. Zechariah receives his orders from God, and so he goes and he digs out a shepherd costume from the dress-up box at his local church's children's ministry storage area. That's usually when we see these shepherd costumes, right? It's in a Christmas nativity, which more often than not, if we're honest, has a lot of comedic moments in it, since it's involving children in the play. Well, there's nothing comedic about Zechariah's play acting here. Right away, we see that this is not a comedy, it's a tragedy. 
The prophet is told, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. And as we read through the first sign act, it becomes apparent that this is actually a revelation of what has already happened to Israel, as opposed to what is going to happen next. This is God retelling the story of how his people had rejected him and ended up in exile. It's like God saying, let me take you back again one more time, just to the days before exile. And as he does so, it's not a pretty picture. The nation is depicted as, a, as the temple on a busy day. There are those present who are buying sacrificial sh- sheep. And these buyers represent the kings and the rulers of the day, whether local or national or foreign. Bad leaders, those who should be shepherding the people who are callously buying and selling the sheep with abandon, showing no pity whatsoever to them. So Zachariah puts on his shepherd costume. He takes up his two shepherding implements, which are two staffs, almost like two ski poles, one named Grace, representing the relationship between the people and God, the other named Union, representing the unity of the people of God, and off to work he goes. Look what happens next in verses 8 to 9. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, But I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. So within a month, Zechariah has destroyed the three shepherds. Now the question is, well, who are the three shepherds? If you consult Joyce Baldwin's commentary on Zechariah, she mentions that there are over 40 suggested options for who they were. Now, we could spend the rest of our sermon just going through those 40 options, but I'm guessing you don't really want to do that. And I would suggest that you go with my hunch, which is that the fact that Zachariah doesn't give us their identity strongly suggests it doesn't actually matter who they were. What is important to see here, as John Calvin points out, is that God has been in the business of getting rid of bad shepherds and ungodly rulers for a very long time. So you sort of get a picture of Zechariah here in sign act mode, wandering around Jerusalem, dressed as a shepherd with his two poles, and he gets involved in three confrontational encounters with bad leaders. You sort of imagine these characters bumping into the prophet as he strides around Jerusalem. And Zechariah, like Luke Skywalker with a lightsaber in each hand, goes, die, bad shepherd, die, or something like that. You can imagine however you want to think. And you would think, based on what it says here, that leads to a happy outcome. He's getting rid of the bad shepherds. But as we read on, we discover that's actually not the case. Because it turns out the sheep are just as bad as the shepherds. The sheep keep rejecting God's good shepherd. They actually, and he uses this word, they detest the good shepherd. Just feel the weight of that for a moment. They detested the good shepherd provided by God to protect them. And as a result, the shepherd's patience with the flock is exhausted. Verse 9, he hands in his resignation papers. Verses 10 to 14, he breaks both of those staffs, grace and union, and he asks for his wages. And the shepherd is paid 30 pieces of silver, a derisory amount, 
which in Exodus 21, verse 32, was the price that a slave owner received as compensation for a slave gored to death by someone else's ox. But because Zechariah was acting throughout as the representative of God here, the true shepherd of Israel, the insult was as much at God as as his servant. So God commands Zechariah to dispose of the sarcastically named lordly price and throw it into the temple foundry to be melted down. What did all those actions mean, all the sign actions? They signified that after having persevered for so long with a rebellious people, God's patience had eventually run out. And that since the people had broken the covenant by detesting him and rejecting him as Lord, God declared the covenant annulled and ceased shepherding his people. God would leave the flock now to the not-so-tender mercies of a worthless shepherd. The people would get the kind of leaders they deserved, which is all what led to their defeat by the nations, by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, and to their exile. The chilling charge in verse 9 here, let those who are left devour the flesh of another, refers to what happens in the siege of a city when dead corpses are eaten for food because of how desperate people are in their hunger, which is something that the book of Lamentations in chapter 2 and chapter 4 says happened during the siege of Jerusalem before it fell to the Babylonians. Well, having played the part of a good shepherd who's rejected by those he was seeking to care for, Zechariah then is told the final verses of this chapter to act the part of a bad shepherd who's given to the people as a punishment for rejecting the good shepherd. The first sign act looked to the past. The second one brings things up to the present for Zechariah's audience as the prophet represented the oppressive leadership that they had suffered as a consequence of their choices in the past. There's much less detail given here for this second performance, but the gist of it is not hard to see. The bad or foolish shepherd did not care for the weak and vulnerable of the flock or feed the healthy, but rather devoured and feasted on the fat sheep of the flock. In other words, this bad shepherd was functionally and morally a disaster. Whatever was represented by the bad shepherd, and he probably represented more than just one leader, what was clear was that ditching Yahweh as your shepherd for this guy was an act of sheer and utter lunacy. However, this bad shepherd was God's judgment on his people for their failure to value and respond appropriately to the loving care of the true shepherd, God himself. In the end, they were getting the kinds of leaders they had chosen, and that was God's judgment on them. Now, I want for a moment or two to relate all of this to this contemporary moment in our lives. I think God still gives us leaders we deserve in response to whether we value his loving care as our shepherd. However, at the same time, it has to be said and has become very apparent in recent years that a significant number of people have suffered under bad and abusive leadership in the church for no fault of their own. The high-profile cases are the ones that get the headlines. Over the last few years, Bill Hybels, Ravi Zacharias, just this last month or so, Brian Houston from Hillsong. But behind those well-publicized cases are countless others that are 
less frequently reported. In one recent study, three insurance companies reported that over a 20-year period, they had received over 7,000 claims of sexual abuse by clergy, church staff, congregational members, volunteers, just from three companies. And a passage like Zechariah 10 to 11 is therefore not dealing in the abstract. It touches on painful things, perhaps even for some of us here this morning. And for others, it shakes their confidence in the church that this kind of thing goes on. It shakes their confidence either from within the church or looking from the outside in. One of the ways I think this passage sheds light on such abuse is, is how it helps us see that false leadership, bad shepherding, is really rooted in a, in a misuse of power. Diane Landberg uh, is a psychologist and a Christian. She's based here in Philadelphia, globally recognized for her 45 years of clinical work with trauma victims. A few years ago, she gave an extremely helpful workshop to our presbytery on trauma and on the abuse of power. And Lamberg, Lamberg points out that the word abuse literally means misuse. And specifically, she says, it's the misuse of power. That abusive leadership is not the failure of leadership. It's a gross distortion of leadership. That a shepherd has power to protect. That's the job of the shepherd. But instead of the... the Instead, the strength of the shepherd to protect the flock is now misused against the flock for the shepherd's selfish ends. And at the root of such misuse of power, suggests Zechariah back at the beginning of chapter 10, is idolatry. It's not so much that power corrupts. There are many people, Christian and non-Christian, who use power for good ends. If you want to read an excellent book on how how power rightly used and understood is a very good gift from God, then let me recommend to you Andy Crouch's book called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. It's an excellent book. So it's not that power corrupts. It's the idol of power that corrupts. As we've said before, idolatry in the Old Testament is primarily about worshiping physical idols, false gods who are no gods at all instead of worshiping the one true living God. But the Old Testament then opens up for us something that the New Testament develops further, that we can worship conceptual idols where a good thing made by God becomes a bad thing because we have made it an ultimate thing. So that when anyone says, I have to have power, I must have dominion. It's become an idol. And God says in this passage, I will not stand by and give up ground to such idols. But perhaps the most important thing to note in these chapters is that God speaks with incredible compassion and care to those in this chapter and in our lives who have been wounded by abusive leadership. And notice that the strength of his compassion for survivors is seen here to be matched by the ferocity of his anger at those who commit abuse. Chapter 10, verse 3, my anger is hot against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders, he says. And I hope there's some comfort here for any of you who are survivors of abuse, whether that's been in a church setting or in your home, or elsewhere. 
because it can feel like no one sees you, no one understands you, no one is standing with you. In those situations, we think the Lord can't have seen us or else he wouldn't have let this happen. But Zechariah assures us here that in the midst of the mess of this sinful world, the Lord does see and the Lord does stand with us against abusers, that he will heal and he will hold to account. Zechariah 10 and 11 seems to leave the prophet's audience in a very precarious position because according to the actions of the good shepherd, in response to the people's rebellion and disobedience, God has annulled the covenant. I mean, that sounds like it's curtains. It sounds like God has had enough. It sounds like that's the end. And yet, just before these chapters, at the end of last week's passage, as I mentioned earlier in this message, Zechariah points us to a vision of the consummated kingdom, the world to come when all things will be made new. And you know how he refers to his people on that day? He calls us the flock of his people. Future. That's what we will be. Because you see, God hadn't given up on his people. Indeed, from the beginning of Zechariah, God has been saying, I'm going to finish what I started. I'm going to fix and make all things new. So with the annulment, was the old covenant broken? Well, yes and no. But what is in no doubt here was that God was committed to fix it. And the way he would fix it was by means of a new covenant through a good shepherd. That brings us to our final point, this good shepherd. Matthew chapter 9, the Gospels. Jesus is traveling around numerous cities and towns, we're told, villages. Matthew tells us that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were, quote, harassed and helpless, and then alluding to Zechariah 10, like sheep without a shepherd. And as a result, Jesus sends out his disciples with authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal sickness and to proclaim that the kingdom of God is here. I think that's a picture for us that the battle imagery of Zechariah 10 and 11 was actually pointing to a spiritual battle, which would come to its climax in the death of the good shepherd. That death was largely precipitated, as you read in the Gospels, by a betrayal. Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, goes to the political and religious leaders of Israel, asks them, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus and hand him over to you? And the answer, 30 pieces of silver, right out of Zechariah 11. That betrayal would lead to Jesus' arrest, which would lead to his execution, all of which Jesus knew was going to happen, had to happen, because this was the only way this shepherd could ultimately and eternally take care of his sheep. Listen to what Jesus said. These, These were our words of encouragement today. They've been the benediction every Thursday morning in our daily prayer project for Lent. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, at first glance, that makes no sense whatsoever. What good is a dead shepherd to the sheep? I mean, the only way for a shepherd to protect his sheep is to be alive. Unless that somehow, by dying, that shepherd ultimately is protecting the flock and destroying the threats forever 
to the flock, which is exactly what Jesus was doing. Because in his death, he was defeating death. He was defeating sin. He was defeating the evil one. And in his death and resurrection, he was subverting the norms of the idols of power, changing the way we think about power. So that Jesus, the one whom Zechariah pointed us to last week as the coming king, the one whom we've seen this week, is not only the good shepherd, but he's the cornerstone, the tent peg, the battle bow, the one who had all the power, then does the most remarkable thing with it. He gives it all up even to the point of death on a cross. And he does that completely out of love for us, the flock. So that worldly power misuses power for the sake of the self by subjugating others, the Lord Jesus comes and he gives up his power on the cross for the sake not of himself but others by laying down his life for them. I recently watched the uh, film Gladiator, came out in the year 2000. My friends couldn't believe that I'd never watched it, but so it is. Apparently the uh, director, Ridley Scott, changed the ending of that film from what he had originally planned. So spoiler alert, has been 22 years, so maybe I'm safe here. But in the original ending, Commodus dies as Maximus wields his power as a better warrior, a better leader. He defeats him in the Colosseum. The problem with that ending was that it didn't make it an epic film. It just turned the film into a revenge movie. The Maximus is out for revenge at the beginning for the wrong done to him, and he gets revenge at the end. But it's not restorative. And so Ridley Scott perhaps knew that the only way it could be restorative, the only way it could be an epic, is when we see that Maximus realizes that the opposite of Commodus's abusive power is to lay down his life. And so Maximus dies. He gives up his life for Rome. He lays it all down out of love, out of sacrifice, which is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Early in the pandemic, I heard a sermon by the English preacher Vaughn Roberts on Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd. In those days, all of us were looking for someone to shepherd us. And, and in the sermon, he told this story that really resonated with me. It's a story that involves a young man in a rural area going to a church. And the pastor asked him on one occasion how he was finding things. The man said, I've been enjoying the services, but I do have some questions. And so they agreed to, to meet up. And knowing that the young man lived on a farm, a small farm on which there were sheep, the, the pastor turned the man to Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. He said, if you want to understand the Christian faith, think about these five words. Think of them like the five digits on your hand. So he says, number one, the. There's only one God, one Savior, Jesus Christ. Two, Lord, he's the one who made everything and is in complete control. Three, is, he is, he's alive. He's not someone from the past, he's the living God. Four, my, he said, I'll come back to that word in a moment. And then five, shepherd. 
And the pastor quoted the verses that we just looked at from John 10. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He said to the young man, when one of your sheep go missing, you go searching for that sheep, right? Well, Jesus, as the shepherd, has come looking for us and was so committed to us that he died on a cross to take our penalty so that we would come back into relationship with him. The pastor said, do you understand that? He said, well, yeah, I understand Jesus is Lord. I understand that he died for me, but, but I still feel like there's something missing. The pastor said, have you ever turned to him yourself? He said, think of that fourth word, my. So you can pray. You can pray. Jesus, I know you're you're the Lord. I know I haven't lived the way that you've called me to. Thank you for dying for me. Please come into my life by the power of the Holy Spirit and live in me as my shepherd. My shepherd. And the young man did that. And it changed everything for him. In the days to come when life was hard, he would hold out his forefinger as a reminder to himself, the Lord is my shepherd, remembering that Jesus was with him. Well, sometime later, there was a terrible snowstorm. The young man went out to look for his animals on his small farm, but but he didn't come back. His friends and his neighbors went out looking for him. They couldn't find him. Only on the next morning did they find him. Tragically, he died. He'd fallen into a snowdrift. But when they told the pastor, they said, you know, the funny thing was that when we found him, he was firmly clasping the forefinger of his left hand. The Lord is my shepherd. Friends, if you're a sheep, and the breaking news this morning is you are, who's your shepherd? Who's your shepherd? There are good shepherds out there and there are bad shepherds out there. Our survival, our flourishing, our eternity depends on following the good shepherd. Jesus says, won't you follow me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that you came as our shepherd, laid down your life for your flock, for your sheep, and that You did this in a way that we, each of us, can say, the Lord is my shepherd. He did that for me. Lord, I pray that for any of us who have not yet put our trust in you in this way, that we would hear the story of the young man as a story to us, as an appeal, an invitation to us to trust you with our lives. And Lord, I pray this morning for anyone for whom... The mention of abuse just stirs up things that are so difficult to even think about in our own lives or the lives of loved ones. And I pray for healing. And I pray for some comfort to know that you're a God of justice and that you will deal with those who have abused, that you hold to account. Help us to find in you all the comfort, the strength, the healing, the consolation that we long for and need. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.